My name is uh, Ace Harich. I'm uh, one of your elders at EP Church. Always welcome to get to know you as many as I can. And I'll be reading uh, from uh, James's letter uh, to the 12 tribes scattered about the nations, as you recall the intro, intro of the book. But we'll be reading uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, which is page 1291 in the Pew Bible. So uh, it's... His uh, warning to the rich, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. Oh, they're good. Everybody's awake. One of the things that really uh, shapes what we do here are what's called core values. And one of our core values as a church is worship, being a uh, worship community. We owe a a tremendous uh, debt of gratitude to God's provision of the musicians and vocalists in our church. And sometimes we take it for granted because they're here every week. And they do things for us and behind the scenes, and we, we don't even notice. Um, not only do they help uh, me lead the service, but they often provide music to so many different groups from our student ministries to our college ministry to our young adults. They're just a tremendous uh, folks. But as I was thinking uh, over there, uh, worshiping with you, how much a joy it is for me uh, to be in worship. I, I get opportunities to be in lots of different worship services um, other than EP, and it's just not the same. One of the reasons it's not the same is you're not there. There's something about worshiping with people that you know. Now, if you're a visitor, I'm not discluding you. A part of worship is always to have people that are unknown becoming known and people getting to know us. I write a, a, a card to our visitors Every week, and one of the things that I put in the card to them is how hard it might be a challenge uh, to find your way in a church that's 54 years old that has people that have been in it the whole time. And that's a real challenge, and we need to reach out and bring them in and encourage them that the the water is warm and that uh, we don't bite. That was facetious. We don't bite. One of the parts of worship that I think is important is that this little part that we get to where we're not talking to God, but he's actually talking to us. And he's speaking uh, uh, through uh, James, but he's also speaking through the preacher as he's faithful to what James has written down that the Lord wanted written down. And so that's what I'm going to do now. If you kind of wonder what this is, it's an explanation of the text, and in this case, the context of the text. And so as Ace read to us, 
there's just six verses, and they seem to be kind of harsh, kind of hard on rich people, uh, particularly uh, uh, people who are employers. And uh, verse 1 says, uh, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Down in verse 5, it's talking to the same uh, rich people. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And then uh, uh, it, it finishes with, uh, with, you have fattened your hearts on the day of slaughter. And you might be thinking, whew, glad he's not talking to me. I'm not rich. But James is talking to us. James is talking to uh, Christians and their money. And you might be saying, and, and, and rightly so, the, the churches where we don't talk about politics and we don't talk about money. The problem with that is, is that the Bible talks about money more than almost any other subject. In fact, Jesus primarily talks about money. And when he's not talking about money, he's talking about poverty. And often those are linked together. And so if the Bible talks about it, we've got to talk about it. And so the, the question comes is, is, why does the Bible talk so much about money? Why, do, why does James all of a sudden start talking to the rich like this? Well, when, when I was about 16 years old, I went to go live with this family, and they had one of the first pools in their neighborhood. And the law back then, and it probably still is today, that you have to have some kind of fence high enough that little children can't climb over or get into the pool and, and uh, have a terrible accident. Nobody wants that as the owner or as the uh, family of the child. And so the way that this family did it, they built one of these uh, tall privacy fences. And so you couldn't see in and you couldn't see out and and it's one of the first ones in the neighborhood. Most everybody in the neighborhood either didn't have a fence or they had a chain link fence, but you could see through. But this house had one of those big six-foot privacy fences that no one can see. But over time, and you know this is true about an old wooden fence, over time, weak spots be- developed holes. We called them knot holes. You know, these just weak spots in the uh, fence. And, and what we found is, is that every now and then, you would see a, an eyeball staring at you as you were swimming. Because naturally people want to know what's going on in there, particularly if there's a, a party going on. And, and so they would look through this knothole. In a lot of ways, your money is a knothole into your heart. It's a, it's a way to see what you value. What's really important to you is to be able to look through the knothole of money into the human heart. Jesus said that. He said, where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. Let me give you two questions to kind of evaluate your money and your heart. The knot hole, let's say. One question is this. If, if somebody came along, and, and I probably can't use this illustration much longer, and that is your checkbook. You know, the millennials are already laughing at me. What checkbook? But there are these little paper things that your parents had to keep track of the money that they've got in the bank. And you say, why don't they use the computer like everyone else? Well, we're all getting there. Some slower than others. But a lot of ways to 
find out where your heart is is to find out what you spend your money on, what you give it to. And so one question is simply, does your giving, your spending, only make sense if Jesus lived, died, and rose again? That is, if if somebody got a hold of your bank statements and they were able to look in there at your giving and your spending, would it reflect the reality that you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Let me give you a second question, if that one might take a little time thinking. Does your, in light of that, in, does your giving and spending reflect a sacrificial concern for the poor? And you say, well, what does that got to do with anything? Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus attaches your spiritual condition to your attitude toward poverty. Because he says, the poor in spirit inherit the earth. That is, do you see yourself as poor? And therefore, your care and concern and sacrificial giving and spending on poor, does that reflect your heart attitude toward your own poverty? I think those are, are important questions to ask. And the only way you can really know that is have someone that's a little more objective than yourself open up your checkbook and see where you're spending. The context of this passage is not money. That is, James is talking about money to rich people because of work. You see that in verse 4. He, he quickly goes and, and, and talks about why the, the day of judgment is coming to rich people who have tr- stored up their treasures... Then he says, behold, he's going to use a labor term, the wages of your laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud. This idea of fraud is you promised them, but you didn't deliver. You got the work that they said they would do for you, but you didn't get anything back or you didn't give what you said you would give them. So he goes on and and says, he says, they're crying out against you. These people that you promised a living wage to in exchange for work, they're crying out against your fraud. And the cries of the harvesters, he's again using a labor term, have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That is, they're crying out not just to the government to make sure that you have fair labor practices, that you don't oppress the poor, that you don't take advantage of the laborer. That's true. Go pick it. But the real cry is being heard of the Lord of the host, the true employer of all employees. The problem when you talk about work in the church is that some people think that work is not a godly pursuit. What they mean by that is that work is a necessary evil that allows me to do what I really want to do, which is to live. It's a work-to-live idea. That, that work is a necessary thing so that I can do the fun thing. What really matters, what really has meaning, what really in, entertains me, what I really enjoy. And for others, they hear about work... And they see it as an all-consuming temptation. 
for them to live to work. That is, if one extreme is to work to live, the other extreme is work to live. And the other one is live to work. I think it creates both of those a false dichotomy, a false division between our faith, what we believe, and our work, what we do. Some have referred to it as a a kingdom work and worldly work, a a secular, sacred divide. That is, what I do from Monday to Friday between the work hours, that's, that's for the world. But once work is over and I have my own time and I can control my own time and what I do, that's kingdom work. And so that makes us all begin to wonder, does does our work really matter? Does it matter to us? Does it matter to our employers? Does it matter to God? And so this morning, I'm using... Uh, 5-4 in the context to give you a biblical and practical overview of work. Because James is assuming these people know this. And so he's addressing the unfair labor practices in the context, assuming they understand that their work matters to God. That there's a value in work. That there is a problem with work. He's addressing that problem. The inequity, the un unequal treatment of of employees but there's also a purpose for work that if we knew what the purpose and the value of work and the problem of work it would change everything about our view toward work we wouldn't live to work or work to live we wouldn't we wouldn't take jobs that that uh we don't like we wouldn't we wouldn't find our significance and our identity by our work The reason we do those things and the reason that we struggle to rest, to truly rest, is because we have an unbiblical and an impractical view of work. And so to recalibrate ourselves, to to bring ourselves back into line, we have to say to the Bible, what does the Bible say about work? And in order to give you that perspective, I center around these ideas of value, problems, and purpose. What's, our va- what's the value of work? Genesis 2.2. So we have to go back to the beginning. Since work has been part of the very beginning. It says on the seventh day God finished his work and he rested. Now in the 21st century we don't realize how revolutionary that statement is. But when Moses wrote it down on Sinai in the middle of the wilderness. Why the Jews had come out of Egypt slavery. And God and Moses is reminding them of how they got here, what the purpose was, what's the why of they find themselves in the wilderness. He writes the recounts the story of creation, and he says, When God was done his work, he rested. And and the reason that's so revolutionary is that they have a God who works. They have a maker, a creator, an artist, a craftsman, a gardener. Our God has dirt under his fingernails. And that was revolutionary in the ancient world. Because no other culture, no other religion had a God who worked. Do you remember the Greeks, their version of work? We know that from Pandora's box. And if you know the story of Pandora's box, inside is all that is evil in the world. 
And that when it's released, all the evil comes out into the world. And so they want to keep the box sealed, but eventually it gets opened. And when it gets opened, all the sorts of disease and famine and death come out. But there's one thing that comes out that surprises us. Work. Because the Greeks thought work is, is menial labor and is not to be done but by those that are, have menial lives, unimportant lives. And, and so in the Greek world, the top of the work world were philosophers and politicians and artists. And at the bottom of the world were farmers and craftsmen. Because they had to do the work in order to live. The Babylonians were the same way. They have, a, they have their own account of creation called the Enuma Elish. And in that Elish, it, it, it tells you that the gods created humans for the purpose of doing the work that they didn't want to do. Because it was beneath the gods to do work. But our God is an artist. He's a craftsman. He's a worker. Genesis 1.27 says that not only is God those things, but we are too. God created man in his image, male and female. He created them. We're workers. We're artists. We're makers. 28 tells us the, here's the work. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the earth. That's often called the creation mandate. That it's given to all of humanity. Not just to Christians, but to all of humanity. is to, to multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. But the point I want to bring out about 128 is that God blessed them by giving them work. We don't tend to think of work as a blessing unless it's a means to our ultimate end. And yet the work itself is the blessing. Not just the end that it brings. Another way to look at humanity is that we are the trustees of God's creation. God did all of this work to create this world in which we get to enjoy it. And really, we're finding out as, as, as science goes out into the cosmos that he created the whole cosmos, not just the earth, for his glory and for our good. And he blessed us by giving work. Do you see your work that way? Do you see your work as a blessing or as a curse? Many do have the latter, not the former. How do we know that? What do we call Wednesday? You can say it. Hump day. As if work is something that we have to get over. Think about that. We can't wait to get to Wednesday because what comes after Wednesday? Thursday. And what comes after Thursday? Friday. And then we have a, a slogan for Friday. Thank God it's Friday. You see, we, it, not only has our culture misunderstood the blessing of work, so has the church. God values work and so should we. Genesis 2.15 says, God put man in the garden to work it. And this is long before sin into the world. This is still chapter 2. No, no chapter 3 yet. God created work. And therefore, Adam and Eve are not park rangers protecting it 
they're gardeners. Our first parents are farmers. They got dirt on their hands. And therefore, work is part of paradise, not just part of the wilderness experience that we're in. As a result of sin, work became hard. It's frustrating at times, and sometimes it becomes unfruitful. But work is good. How many times does God say that about his work? Seven times. And in the end, he, those are, that's a moral statement. I created the heavens and the earth, and it's good. It's good, it's good, it's good, good. In case you missed it, it's very good. What, what is God doing when he does that? He's hallowing. We don't use that word. It's an old word. It means to, to make something holy, to set it apart, to make it for his use and purpose. When God created and said something was very good, did you know he really was looking at the cosmos and saying, it is mine. And it's for my glory. I'm setting all of creation apart. All of this work. You know what that also means, practically speaking? Is that unemployment and retirement are not part of paradise. Before the fall, there was no 401ks. Adam and Eve didn't have to get in line at the unemployment in order to get some cash because they lost their job. That's all part of the fall. Not part of creation. Not part of its original design. And that also means if you don't like work, you're probably not going to like heaven either. God is a worker and values our work because he values his own work of creation and redemption and glorification when he comes back and makes all things new. And God has made us workers. And it would have been great if the story could end at the end of chapter 2, but it doesn't. It goes on into chapter 3. And, and, and I've longed to both love and hate chapter 3. No chapter 3, there's no hope for redemption. That's the promise. And so the, the worse chapter 3 is, the greater the redemption. That's why it's a love-hate relationship. Adam and Eve were, were not content with how God made things. And so Genesis 3.17 says, because you're not content, because you would rather be your own employer, because you want to go off on your own and be your own boss, and and to tell me I'm not the boss of you. Sometimes we humans are perpetually four-year-olds. You're not the boss of me. When Adam and Eve did that, God said back to them in Genesis 3.17, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall toil, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Work is cursed, but work is not a curse. I know it sounds a little nuanced, I know it sounds a little vague, but work is not cursed a curse. That is, God didn't look at us and say, well, I'm now going to give you work to do. God gave us work before we were discontent. But because we became discontent, work has become hard. In fact, it's become unfruitful at times. And as a result, it creates, this is the problem of work, it creates difficult workplace relationships. And you know that's true. Most of us who work in in environments with other people, it's not long before we have a problem. 
That should not surprise you. It was in the first workplace. The first two employees, Adam and Eve, what did they do? They both, behind the back of the other, spoke to the boss about them. They, they went and said, you, you, know, you know, boss, that other employee you put in our workplace, she's not very good at this. In fact, she's ruining the workplace. Did you not check her references? And then I'm, I'm sure Eve goes to, to the boss and says, Hey, he doesn't have leadership skills. Can you, can you, did you not read Jim Collins' book on leadership? Why would you pick this guy and put him in charge? It's not new. It's been going on since creation began in the very first workplace. Broken relationships at work. But also there's oppressive labor practices. There seems to be a growing disparity between those that have and those that have not. The rich and the poor. But that too is not a modern problem. Even James recognizes that. He says, you rich, you, you, need, to, you need to mourn. Why? Because you've hired these laborers, these employees, and you're not paying them a living wage. You're not paying them what you told them that they would receive, or they would have never accepted the job in the first place. That's called fraud. Jimmy Carter, when he received his Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo, they asked him this question. What is the greatest challenge the world faces? And you might not agree with Jimmy's assessment. But I think there is something true here. To show you that this is not a new problem, but it is a big problem. Among all the possible choices, I believe the most serious and universal problem is the growing chasm between the richest and the poorest people on the earth. And most of the world's ills can be traced to this root problem. It's just not new. It is big, but it's not new. There's also unsafe work conditions, and, and many of you know this. Your, your very favorite chocolate, your very favorite, are being produced by children who are practically being paid nothing to harvest those cocoa beans. And I, and I know if you saw these children and the lifestyles in which they had to live to get you that chocolate, you would not buy that chocolate. And one of the other things we value as Americans is cheap goods. Sometime when you go home, when you decide to take off these really nice clothes, I want you to look inside and see where they were made. Most of the threads that we wear are made in places like Malaysia and China where they have no labor practices. They operate sweatshops where children have unsafe workplaces where it is not uncommon for them to be injured while they work. And all the employer does when they get injured is fire them because they can't produce. Another area that we see this brokenness is in advertising aimed at children. The president of Toys R Us, the former president, we have to say former because Toys R Us have gone out of business. 
This is what he said about their advertising and all children's advertising. He called it porn for toddlers. That's an amazing admission from the president of the industry that we did this to get kids addicted so they'll cry out to their parents, I want that. It's hard to take a child into the store anymore because he's already seen what's on the shelves in his home. The irony of technology. We were told, this isn't an anti-technology message, but we were told it was going to save us time. And the evidence has already proven that we're more addicted to our iPhones and iPads and computers than we ever were by time-consuming labor practices. Many people are exhausted in America by their work. And we're not even the hardest working nation in the world. You'd have to go to Japan to see that. Where they wake up early to get on a train and go to work for 14 hours before they get to go home. And because the employer wants them there in the morning, he's created tubes for them to sleep in. So they'll stay at work. But that's so many in America are so exhausted by their work. We don't know how to rest. We identify with Lady Gaga who says that my whole life is a performance and I have to, I have to up the ante every day. Why have we lost God's perspective on our work? I think it's primarily because we've lost its purpose. We don't know why for which work was created. And let me ask you a couple of questions to get at that, and then I'll obviously wrap it up. And who do we work for? Who do you work for? Who do I work for? And mine seems to be so obvious because I work in, the, in a full-time ministry. Oh, obviously he's got God as his employer. How about you? Whether you're at NSA or the, the medical center or, or at, at a, a Christian school or even in some, your own home. Who do you work for? Who's your, who's your ultimate boss? Ephesians 6 says, Do not work by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. We don't use that phrase anymore by way of eye service. It literally, it really means uh, to how you appear, to be approved by others. But we're servants of Christ. That word servant means slave. You see, we've got this impression, and and maybe it's us preachers that gave it. So I'll, I'll take all the blame. And we, uh, we have often said, Christ rescued you to set you free. And what we've tended to mean by that is not how we have all taken it. We have, tend, we have tended to take in that freedom to mean I don't have a boss. I'm my own boss. That Christ rescued me so that I wouldn't have a boss. So that I wouldn't have a master. So that I wouldn't have someone. I wouldn't have to be a slave to some. Christ came to rescue you from sin only to put you into his bondage. Only to put him as the master of your life. And if you're new to EP and you're just thinking about Christianity, if there's ever a reason to reject Christianity, this is it. I want to be really fair. If you think Christianity is unfair, please let this be what is unfair by American standards. And you're going to have to work through that. 
that Jesus Christ did not, set, did not save you to set you as your own master and Lord. Jesus saved you so that he would be your master and Lord instead of sin and death. And that's okay. If you've got to wrestle through that, you've got to wear that for a little while. And ultimately, if you reject Christianity, don't reject it because you don't like the preacher, or you don't like the music, or you don't like the chairs. Reject it because Jesus says, I am Lord. And you either bow to me now, or you will bow to me in eternity. Listen, you want to do a good job as an employee, but you're not doing it for the approval of your boss. You're doing it for Christ. So the second question is, is connected. How then shall we do our work? If Christ is my boss, how should I do my work? If I serve Christ ultimately as an employee of NSA or the Naval Academy or the Medical Center or you're a, you're, you're a stay-at-home parent, and you might say, well, that means if you're a Christian, you're supposed to have integrity. Of course you're supposed to have it. Who would argue that you're supposed to have no integrity? That's almost a, a nonsensical argument. But please understand, what employer doesn't want every employee to have integrity? You don't have to be a Christian to have integrity. In fact, survey after survey shows that lots of people, atheists, Mormons, lots of people have integrity that have nothing to do with Christ. How about a good attitude? Everybody wants a good attitude at work. Yeah, don't we expect every employee to have a good attitude? What makes us different? It's more than the quality of our lives, but it's also the quality of our work. Colossians 3.23 says, work heartily unto the Lord in whatever you do. We don't use that word, do we? We don't tell our kids, work heartily. It's not a word we tend to use anymore, but it simply means wholeheartedly or with all your heart. How do you, this is the, the real question, how do you work with your whole heart at your job without giving your whole heart to your job? I know it, it sounds a little nuanced, but it's so important. You worked for Christ. He's the only one who has ownership claim over your heart. But at the same time, we work wholeheartedly for him at work. Wouldn't it be great? I think this would be awesome to go to a nice restaurant. You're sitting there with some of your friends at work. It's, it's lunchtime. And, and, and you know how it is. Sometimes people talk loud enough that you can hear their conversation. And you hear a conversation of a group of employers here in Annapolis. And you hear them say this. And I know it's illegal to say this. But I only hire Christians. Because they're the best workers. I love the sentiment behind that. I know you can't, in an interview, only hire Christians. That is, you can't say, are you a Christian? Can you share your testimony in three minutes and then I'll give you the job? But wouldn't it be great that the reputation of Christians in our community is so grand in relation to wholeheartedly working for an employer that they want us, that they think we're the best employees on the job? You ever hear 
uh, salesmen sometimes get together and have a conversation about their customers. My guess is it's a lot like teachers talking about their students. You know, they get together and, and sometimes the way they talk about their customers, and this isn't everybody, I don't want to paint all salesmen this way, but sometimes they, they paint them as they're not really bright. <laughs> they're not the best, but we've got to help them. We've got to give them what they need. Loving Christ empowers you to love your customer. The best salesmen should be Christians because they are loved by Christ and they love Christ and therefore love their customers. Therefore, your work is not so much that you, so that you can do your ministry. Your work is your ministry. It's your calling. Just one word to Christian employers or managers, and many of you are. If you're not the owner, you're the manager, and therefore you have influence over the culture of your job. Did you know that your position to influence a culture, that your culture is to be a place where people flourish as God image bearers? That is, you're not destroying the image of God at your workplace. You're making it flourish. But you're also, as a second goal, you're trying to make a place that contributes to the flourishing of the community. And you might rightly ask, but that's not the bottom line. The bottom line is the bottom line. Are we making a profit? Let me just give you a a quote from a couple of business guys. One is Jim Collins and the other one is David Packard. And you might know both of them. In Built to Last, Jim Collins says this. Here is what separates a a great company from a good company. Contrary to business school doctrine, we did not find maximizing profits as the dominant driving force through the history of the most visionary companies. Hear what he's saying. And this is what he does in his book, uh, uh, both in Good to Great, but also in Built to Last. They went looking for the companies that were the best in their field. And the commonality wasn't that they were driven by the financial profit. They had a different goal. And David Packer says this, Profit is not the proper end and aim of management. I know that sounds funny. It is what makes the proper end and aim possible. What they are saying is that there's another bottom line than the bottom line. It is the care and equitable treatment of the employees. It is the benefit of the whole community in their existence. It doesn't matter what you do or what service you provide. And it's something that that Dan alluded to that I think we don't tend to think about our work that's very important. And that is that your work points to his work. That when you create, when you make something that has not been there before, when, when you come up with a new idea to service your customers, you're participating in the same work that God did. Creating. And, and when something has gone horribly wrong and you enter into that brokenness and you seek the redemption of that situation and of the people that are there, you're reflecting Christ's work. It's not salvation, don't get me wrong, but it points to salvation. How else are they supposed to get that picture? And then thirdly, when you make all things new, when, when you come in and you bring something in the community, when you relieve suffering, and it, obviously you can't 
ultimately make anything brand new that is broken. But it does point to that. And so it makes your work a picture of that work. This is the context for James 5, 1 through 6. He's not just getting on to rich people. That would be missing it for most of the room. He wants us to recognize that our work has value. And the reason we're so frustrated is there's a problem with work since the fall. But ultimately it has a purpose. And that we work to that end for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. This is so so right where we live most of our lives, day in and day out. Give us the faith to believe. To rise up our hearts. To see our work more than menial tasks that lead us to do what we really want to do. And to help us from giving our whole hearts to our work so that it becomes our identity. To see it almost as a sacrament. Not quite, but almost. To see it as a pointer, a signpost to your work. Your great work. That it is a way that we worship you with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.